0: I'm Indy Neidell from The Great War, and this is the first in a series of interviews that I'll be doing with writers, professors, and other people who create history and research history about the First World War. And my guest today is Nick Lloyd, who wrote uh, the book Passchendaele, A New History, which came out this year. Nick, can you say hi to everybody and tell them a little bit about yourself? Hi, it's
1: great to be here. Uh, Well, yeah, we had the book that came out this year, uh, Passchendaele, A New History, which was published on the 100th, you know, for the 100th anniversary of the great battle in Flanders in 1917. So that was, um, you know, one of those great events of the Western Front that year, pivotal battle. It's a battle that um, really seems to epitomize what we think of the Western Front. Um, And that was the fourth book I've written. I've written on 1918. I've written on 1915. So the Western Front has always been a major interest of mine. Um, and the First World War more generally. It's a period of great, um, great change, um, great horror, great tragedy. So it's got all the, in, you know, all the things that historians like to write about.
0: Now, what sparked your interest in the First World War in the beginning? Is this something you've had since you were a boy? Or is this something that came about later on when you were studying? Or?
1: No, I mean, I've always been interested in the First World War. I mean, we, I heard about it from my grandmother because uh, she lost a brother uh, in the war, and he was—he was, he was just—I think he was 19 when the war. He was killed in September 1918, and he was 19 years old. So the Great War has always um, been like a family tragedy, and I think for many people, um, I know certainly in the UK, but I know uh, you know across Europe, that war is like a um, a dividing line. Is the beginning of modern history for most people. It's the Great tragic event so I, I learned about the first world war from you know stories and um you know tales about this sort of lost brother and um you know when we when we did uh, history at school we we kind of uh, certainly in the modern uh, in the modern history we started in about 1919 you know the kind of treaty of Versailles and the growth of the nazi party in germany yeah. and we ended in 1939 so we never did any war and I was always interested in war. War seemed to me the most interesting part of history. Um, so they so didn't cover it, even the University. Second World
0: War in your school. It was just no. Really- it's,
1: it was it's all about you know it's all about the rise of the Nazis and the techniques that the Nazis used to control power, which is all very interesting and very useful. But we didn't actually cover the war. We sort of ended. We began and ended um, <clears throat> without looking at the wars. And I, and I thought the actual. You know, that was always where my interest lay in the actual wars. So, you know, when I got to university, I was able to study war uh, and study the Western Front and, and, you know, the Great War and the fascination really grew. It is, you know, it is just one of those things that you never get tired of studying. There's always more questions. There's always more things to study because it's such a it's such a vast, terrible tragedy that um, it's eternally fascinating
0: Now, there's zillions of uh, documentaries and movies and shows about the Second World War and in many ways it overshadows the First. Do you think, uh, can you tell us some ways you think the First World War is still especially relevant today and why that might be a shame that the Second World War tends to overshadow in a lot of people's lives or a lot of people's media habits or whatever you want to say?
1: (coughs) Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, the Second World War is overwhelming. Its presence of the Second World War is overwhelming. Um, But the First War, certainly in Britain, has always been seen as a great tragedy and a great sort of stupid endeavour that was completely fruitless. So that has always been the sort of dominant perception in the UK. And I think getting behind that is interesting, getting actually trying to find out how these things happened. And also trying to look at why certain things happened, why people made certain decisions, the constraints on them. So I think that was always always an interest of mine. And I think that the, you know, we need, you know, we need more more on the First World War. And, I, you know, I think I'm always thinking something like Saving Private Ryan, you know, one of those movies that I think really brought us at the heart of what it's like to be in combat and the horrors of combat. And I, and I wish someone would do that for the First World War. It's too often the First World War, certainly in, the, in, the, in films. There's not too many films about the First World War, but those that do pretty much always have the same plot and they the movie ends when they go over the top and they're all mown down and this kind of view of uh, from the media of, of what first World war battles were about is just you know it's just so unsatisfactory in so many ways and i think it, it doesn't help us so i i wish someone would look at first war battles and film them and try and you know reinvent them you know at a, a macro realistic level i think that would be fantastic but i uh, I just don't see anyone wanting to do it, really. The clichés and the the kind of public expectation are such that if you tried to do it, um, you'd be falling back on those clichés again, I think. And that's a great shame. And they never get off the Western Front, even the things that do,
0: or Gallipoli, maybe. You never see anything, you know, in German East Africa or you never see a movie about the siege of Kut or something like that.
1: No, no, you don't. I mean, you had... um, You did have, of course, um, in the 90s, you had the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. I don't know if you ever, I mean, a name like Indy, you must have seen this.
0: I have seen it. Actually, um, just as a side note, the single strangest, weirdest moment of my life um, was one night, uh, one morning in, in Stockholm. This is like 15 years ago. And I woke up on a Sunday. It was like 11 in the morning. And I just sat up in bed. I was mildly hungover. And I turned on the TV. And there was a girl on the TV screen, staring straight ahead, going "Indy, <laughs> Indy," and, and you know the expression when you feel your skin crawl. I never felt that. I literally felt the skin crawl up my arms. I'm like, "Oh, oh my god!" And it and it was turned out it was the young Indiana Jones, and he was passed out, and she was staring at him, trying to and and I just t- chose that moment to turn on the television, right? So, uh, but yeah, continue. Sorry.
1: There's, there's, you know, there's historical problems with the, the series, but I think you know they looked at different parts of the First World War. They, 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 you know, he's on the Western Front and then he gets captured, and then there's the Italian Front. They also meet Leto Volebeck in Germany, East, East, East Africa, um, and then they fight in Gaza, um, the Third Battle of Gaza. They take Beersheba. So actually, if you look at the lumber of the the Indiana Jones chronicles, which I always really liked, I thought they were really fun. Um, they do that and. Um, there's a real attempt to try and get into some of the, you know, the more interesting aspects of the war. So, yeah, I think the First World War is still, in terms of, uh, you know, films, I think it's a great, um, still a great area for people to, to, um, to explore. Um, and I was always, you know, I think Peter Jackson, the director of Lord of the Rings, he he did a sort of mini movie or small movie about the First World War, and I also, I also felt that was a great lost opportunity because if someone with that magnitude and that power. And that sort of love for realism and actually getting things right. If he could do something on the First War, I think it would be very, very powerful in terms of actually giving people a better sense of what the battles were about, how they were fought, or the different technologies and that. So we wait, you know, we will wait. Um, well, we
0: do have, of course, uh, Battlefield One, you know, which is one of, if not the best selling you know, video games in the world the last year, which of course is the First World War. And what's interesting about that was because, um, you know, me and uh, Marcus here, we wrote some of the codecs for them. And when uh, DICE, the company that made it got hold of me, um, Stefan Strandberg, who came up with the idea for the game, said it was ridiculously hard to pitch it because he would go into pitch meetings and people would say, well, the First World War, well, what, so they're gonna have muskets? And he'd go, no, 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 you don't understand. It's not, you know, but that was the concept. That these well-educated professionals working for, well, a computer game company, but still, that was their perception of the First World War. They didn't think of the clash between the old and new, and you know, the Zeppelins and trying to use old technology and creating new technology. They really thought, you know, how how are we going to make an exciting game for twelve-year-olds about muskets? So that was uh, so. That's interesting. But of course, now there are millions of younger people. Who uh, pay attention to the game to the, the war just because of the game? I know we've got hundreds of thousands of fans because there were tens of thousands of fans because of that. Um, so that's something. I, I agree with you about the film and TV thing. I'm gonna have to go back and check out the Young Indiana Jones because that came out before I started doing research and writing about the war. So I hadn't put that together. But anyway, back to um, back to your books. Um, as you said, Passiondale is your fourth one. Um, and, and two questions. Well, you said why Passchendaele and uh, briefly, but it's called a new history. So what did you bring to the table that hasn't been covered before or what sort of angle were you hoping for that would be would cover it in a new manner?
1: Well, I mean the the battle is an iconic battle Um, and the images we have of the battle have become um, symptomatic for many people of the Western Front. Um, but actual writing about the battle is actually quite light. There's not, a, not too many histories of the battle, which might surprise people. Um, <clears throat> the last main sort of academic study was written in the mid-1990s, um, and really very little has been done since. We've had a little bit on the, uh, the sort of uh, Dominion contingents. There's some writing in Australia and sure. Canada about the, uh, the Canadian and the Australian experience of the battle, um, but we really lacked a, a new history, a, a, bat, a new book that would actually do a whole battle, would take into consideration the kind of German perspective and the German stories uh, and the German story of the battle, which I think is particularly interesting and necessary. And so what I wanted to do was uh, was really go through everything again, look at the assumptions we've made about the battle, um, try and look in a more even way about you know how the attack, attack is conducted, how defense was conducted. Um, and, and, you know, that was really the main effort. And I didn't really know what I was going to find until I, I did it. But I think the main uh, argument that I make in the book is that, you know, the battle is much more successful than we have assumed. And this is not to say that there aren't mistakes or poor commanders and all that kind of thing. But particularly the, the point that I would like to stress is the British start to try and They start the battle trying to break out, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to have that massive breakout. And that doesn't really work. Um, And so what they do in September is they switch tactics to bite and hold, where they use artillery and they advance quite small distances, but they're able to put together a series of these, you know, real hammer blow attacks that pushes the German army into some very difficult, uh, you know, very difficult period. And the German army is really at a point where it can't really... um, you know, it doesn't really have anything to, to play at this point. It's, it just has to take these hammer blows and they do consider withdrawing. So the, the bottom line is there's much more to Passchendaele than kind of the, the blind battle and the, and the kind of meaningless slaughter that it has become synonymous with. But there
0: was the change in tactics again in the October attacks, of course, uh, I suppose you know dealing with the mud and everything, but plumers bite and hold and the six day periods between them that didn't continue once you got to october um I know Haig was Haig was still thinking of breakthroughs because he was always still thinking of breakthroughs, but I think it's very interesting. your book is actually one of my main sources for the weekly episodes i I quote you in at least four or five of them if you look at the whole you know the whole three months of the battle so Hopefully, I'll make you even more famous <laughs> from, yeah. from the YouTube channel. Even, even more famous. Well, what do you think about then the, the tactics changing back again or changing or evolving again in October as opposed to the successes of late September?
1: Yeah, I think you make a very good point. Um, by the time we get to the beginning of October, the weather's come back in. Yeah. The, the British have had a period in September where the weather's good. Um, and so they're able to use uh, you know, aerial reconnaissance, they're able to get their men and materials up, and they're able to support the attacks properly. And they make you know, quite a good success on the 4th of October, uh, the Battle of Broodseinde, uh, which is the, really the high point of the attacks, where they, the Germans really are, are reeling then. And then um, Haig is you know, getting uh, very optimistic at this point, he can, he can feel the Germans breaking. So he wants to push things forward. So, you know, he reduces the time they have to prepare. The weather is bad, and it's not going to get any better. There's no, you know, the weather is well into late autumn.
0: Right, it's a swamp. <laughs>
1: yeah. uh, and he's and he's trying to get to the last high ground, Passchendaele. So he, he, you know, he, he kind of drags it on and keeps pushing on and and the kind of final stage we see a reversion to the kind of problems that british experienced earlier in the battle when the mud is terrible they can't you know get the men up they can't get the guns up and all that kind of thing but that period between 20th september and and, and 4th of october really offers a window into what can be achieved if you get the you know tactics right if you have good weather and you know what you're doing
0: right well that's uh, i think that's what we try to bring out in the uh in uh, the regular episodes. And we also are trying to look at, we did a whole special, it hasn't come out yet, about the German defenses at Just Passchendaele and stuff. So again, trying to present both sides. Because as you say, there are misconceptions about the battle. Uh, I suppose, what would you say the biggest misconception is? That it was just more meat grinder or it was just more of the same old thing? Or what would you say?
1: Yeah, I think very much, you know, that there's a kind of pointless, it's just like the Somme, you know, it, it's kind of endless in, infantry charges across no man's land, dying in, in, you know, drowning in mud and that kind of thing. And while there are, en, you know, incidences of that, the battle is much more directed. And I think you have to know the details, the way that the, the, the periods of the battle change and develop, the way that the Germans use, you know, defense in depth with counterattack divisions is very, very, you know. It's absolutely essential if you know that you can begin to start to understand what's going on rather than this. um, Oh, it was all, you know, it was all rubbish. It was all uh, complete carnage. There's nothing going on here. Um, I think the problem is that a lot of historians haven't looked at the German side and so that they've just focused on the problems that British have. So if you do that, then you tend to get a result that it was it was all more meaningless
0: well, uh, what, what, is there anything more that you found surprising in the German side? Now, you obviously looked at a lot of German, I guess, archival material or war diaries and stuff. And what, what, was there anything that surprised you that you found there?
1: I think it was the, it was the, the tactical debate that they have during the battle and they, their attempt to try and right. work out how do we defend. And I think that was really interesting because, um, you know, they, they look at the, the first attack where the British try to go to breakthrough. And they, they're quite happy with this. Yeah, They can deal with this. They, they strike back yeah. with, with the counterattack divisions. The British are too strung out. They're quite happy with the, I think they call it the famous British penetration tactics. Um, and I think the degree to which they worried and concerned when the British switched to bite and hold is really surprising. Well, not so necessarily surprising, but I found that really interesting when they they actually get to a point where they don't know what to do. They can't actually come to a solution. They can't prevent these bite-and-hold attacks from coming in. All they can do is, well, they either take it, they either just hold the line and get smashed to hell, or they retreat, and they don't want to do either. So I think Mm -hmm. that degree to which their defensive tactics had basically kind of run into a wall by by the end of 1917, I think that's really interesting, and I think it... It really gives, I think, a key understanding. You know, one of the factors why the Germans go on to the attack in 1918 is they know that defensively this is becoming more problematic and they're losing more men. And this is not as easy as it once was. And do we want to continue doing this? And the question is, no way. So I guess then you can see those late
0: September attacks and the October attack at Budzende as a real turning point because it changed the actual German doctrine from defensive to
1: offensive in a way? Or well I think it it brings out the limitations of defence in depth and that there's only so again, there's only so much they can do. So I think what it does is it highlights that we don't we're running out of ideas. And right. we're not sure how we can in any way prevent these attacks from coming in. So if there's nothing we can do maybe there's another way out of here and of course that combines with the situation in Russia and then they think you know actually attack is going to be what we what we have to rely on but I think that these the battle shows that tactics are constantly changing and constantly being reevaluated um, on the western front by both sides and that degree of innovation and you know hard thinking about how you fight how you coordinate how you keep you know, hold ground, how you take ground, is really interesting. And, of course, goes against so many of the popular myths of the war that this is all mindless, and it's it's really not. The problem in the First World War is it's, it's a uniquely difficult environment to fight in. Logistically, with the technology, with the communications, it's very easy to screw up in the First World War. It's very easy to screw up, even if you do everything right. You get your artillery in, you plan it, you, you know, have air supremacy, you have control of the air, even if you do everything right, you, know, you train your troops, they give them maps, if you had to do everything right, you can still get very badly burnt on the Western Front. And that's what I think What most people don't realize, they think there's an easy way out and there wasn't.
0: Why would you think, um, compared to say Arras, the other major British Western Front offensive of this year, why would Passchendaele have such a big place in public memory? Um, maybe it doesn't, Hugo, but I, 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 it's my impression that Passchendaele has stuck with people more than Arras has stuck with people. Oh,
1: yes, you're absolutely correct. I mean, you know, the Battle of Arras is, is virtually unknown um, in, a wider, in a wider public sense. Passchendaele, it, it, it's the name, it's the images of the battle. It's the moonscape of mud. It's those great images that the Australian photographer Frank Hurley took um, of those shattered woods, you know, duckboard trenches, men drowning in shell holes. All of these images are images that we associate with the First World War. When we think about the Western Front, actually we think about Passchendaele. So, and the name, of course, the name, the the seemingly, you know, the the kind of links you can make, you know, the passion of the Christ, you know, the valley valley of the the shadow of of death. Um, You know, I preface the book with a quote from Wyndham Lewis, You know, as soon as I saw the name on a trench map, I knew what would happen. So I think for those reasons, Passchendaele has become synonymous with the war, synonymous with the, certainly for the British, with the, you know, problems with command or the incompetence of generals. um, And that it seemed to push the British army, you know, further than it had ever been pushed. So I think that's why the battle has become such an iconic battle
0: and of course for the dominion uh, armies that was a, another step forward in their in their you know whatever not just independence in their achievements with the canadians and the anzacs and stuff so um but now the book itself how long did it take you to research and write the book
1: uh 3 years 3 years and so yeah, 3 3 years of pretty much constant work on it. I didn't really do anything else. It was just it was just that.
0: Did you know before, I mean, how long ago did you think, oh, I'm going to do a book about Passion Dale? Was that 3 4 years ago or was this maybe 15 years ago you thought my fourth book? You know,
1: been... we were, I'd finished I'd finished a book on the 100 days, the last phase of the Great War. Um, and that you know I did that because you know that hit that period historically has not been the subject of that many uh, books or that many studies. And I thought it was a really interesting story. Most people don't really know how the war ends. So I did that. And then, um, you know, it was a question of what to do next, what to sort of build on. And, you know, this was you know, 20, 2013, 2014. So you're looking, you know, and, and the next thing to do is I felt that the Psalm, you know, the Psalm has been written about extensively and I didn't think there was necessarily that much you could do. But when I looked at, you know, other major anniversaries of battles coming up, Passchendaele, I thought was really interesting because I looked at it and there's not that much on my shelf about Passchendaele. And I thought, you know what, I'm not actually sure I know about this battle. I'm not sure I really understand it. Um, and I'm not sure I have the answers in my, on my bookshelf, you know. And I think that when you get to those questions, and you know, I've been reading the war, reading about the war for for, for dec- you know, decades now, so yeah. um, that's about two decades really. So um, I thought, you know, this is we'll do and we'll do something on Passchendaele. It's, it seems to be again that iconic battle. So that was really the reason. And if you know, you can time it for an anniversary. I think that gives it a real kind of urgency to it. So. Um, yeah. It
0: was great timing for us when it came out because it was a brilliant new source for us. So thanks, you know. Um, but the act, now, the actual research and writing process. I don't know if you do it the same for all of your books, but for how does that work for, for those out there who haven't written historical books? Um, what is the research and writing process?
1: It's um, it's a combination of different things. I mean, I always like to start writing on day one, which is probably a very bad thing. But I, I just start writing stuff. I just start writing the book. Um, and obviously, I know about the First World War, so I know roughly the kind of people I'm going to include, and I know the the period, so I can just start writing. Um, but I know some people they do all the research and then they they will write uh, subsequently. But I, I found I find that it's only really with putting things down that I get to order my thoughts. So I think that we have we tend to think of a, a real distinction between writing over here and research over there. And you do your writing once you've done your research. But for me, I can only, I only know what research questions to ask once I've written it down. And the two are very much connected with me. So I'll do a bit of writing and I'll do a bit of research, do a bit of writing, do a bit of research. And I'll do it all together and I'll just go through Uh chronologically. So I start at the beginning and then I'll just work my way through. But... You know, for me, it's always been, I want to get stuff down on the page and I'll revise it and revise it and revise it. I mean, I, I was recently read, uh, watching a video with a the great American historian, Shelby Foote, um, and it, his technique was, I mean, completely different to mine. He was writing in a very different time, but his his style was he would write about 500 words a day and he would write it by hand with a dip pen and then he would type it up and there would be virtually no revision to that. that. That would be it, and he would send that off to the publishers and then, you know the occasional typo and that would be it for me it's a a constant process of revision and reading and rewriting reading you know reading it through again and again and again and just gradually um you know it's like i guess it's you know you start big and then you gradually sort of narrow it little things down things don't Makes sense to you, or the rhythm in the paragraphs not right, so you just keep keep revising really, and that's it's always been the way I've done it. But I've always started from you know from day one to start writing. Okay, the stuff you write initially might not be that good, but um, it gives me a satisfied feeling that I actually have words on the page. Okay,
0: and and it's it's actually and what's one thing that that you can I of course can't help but appreciate is that it's easy reading. I mean, there's plenty of historians out there that they are difficult to penetrate. Even if the information they're presenting isn't substantially different from somebody else's, maybe and stuff, but yours is quite easy to read. But I'm curious about your sources, and I'm sure everybody else is. I mean, what primary sources or secondary sources you are using?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the British stuff is pretty, um, pretty straightforward. You have the um, the records of the army and the national archives in queue, so all the war diaries, the army operation reports, that kind of thing. Personal accounts, Imperial War Museum, so that's a major source. Um, Little Heart Centre at King's College London has some private papers of various individuals and a lot of generals, that's quite useful. Um, Haig's diary, um, many of the personal sort of published accounts of the battle. I'll look through, you know, the historians, uh, I'll have them as a guide. The historians have written it, I'll have them as a guide. Um, Canadians, again, you you know, you've got... um, the uh, there's papers in Ottawa. The, the Canadian War Museum is very good. Uh, the Canadian uh, National Archives, Library and Archives Canada, uh, Australian War Memorial. So they're the kind of for the for the Allied side that you know that's that's the kind of bulk of the sources. And obviously for the for the German side, it's more difficult. I mean, I don't speak German, so it's you know I'm not I'm not a great language person. But I think there's quite a lot of published material that is available, memoirs from generals and that kind of thing. That you know again mostly haven't been looked at or, or, or researched in English. So there's lots of material there. And then, uh, German regimental histories are very good. Well, some are very good. Some are not so good, but you know, you, you take your pick with those. Um, and then you get, you know, one of the great sources is the, the, you know, the Kriegs archive in Munich, which is, which is really interesting stuff. And again, not, not, not tapped at all. I mean, there's lots of material there, <coughs> excuse me. And, um, you know, that can help fill in some of those blanks. Um, but I think, you know, it's, um, for me, the German material is very challenging and, and trying, trying to translate the stuff and, and that that kind of thing is, is that takes a lot of time and that takes a lot of work. Um, but, you know, I enjoy it and I think it's interesting and you can get really good insights. So it's really a combination of those things that, um, that can give you a balance of sources, I Oh, think. yeah.
0: Um, what sort of reactions did you get in Germany from this book?
1: Um, very little, actually, very little. Um, I mean, I've had very good reaction in the UK and, and abroad um, in America. Um, a, a translation was made in uh, in, in Holland into Dutch, and that would, that seemed to go down very well. Um, but, yeah, very, very little from Germany. So, And I, and I think that says a lot about... Um, German memory of the First World War, mm. uh, and and the Germans aren't really that interested in in the military history of the war. Um, it would be interesting to see that whether that changes next year, uh, but I think it's it's something that um, you know this is not something that many German scholars work on. There are some, but it's it's something that um, it, it's it's not really um, broken through in a way that I think perhaps yeah. it should.
0: So uh, and now that you've. Put Dale to bed. What's next? Do you have a have a have a plan for a next book? Or? Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, uh, we've you know, I'm starting a, a new book. It's going to be uh, it's going to be called Western Front, and it's it's going to tell the story of the Western Front from from 1914 to 1918. So it's going to be a okay. big bigger book than I've written before, bigger in terms of words, bigger in terms of scope. Um, so. So that's something that you know I've been thinking about for a few months now, and, and and we're going ahead with it. So it's very exciting. So it's, I think it allows me to use what I've done in the past, but in a real in a much bigger yeah. canvas.
0: Have you have you begun writing that already, or is it still in the planning process?
1: Yeah, yeah, I've started writing it. I mean, I started writing it. You know, we've started to look at different different campaigns and different things. So it's it, for me, it's very interesting because I get to do things I haven't done before, and and you know, again, trying to do. Um, what I've done in the past. So a lot, a lot on the French army, a lot on the German army. Um, and then obviously the British um, will become more important as the yeah. book goes on. But I think it's interesting that, um, you know, lots of books on the first world war, but um, very few uh, on the Western front as a whole. Yeah. Some coffee table books and things like that. Um, Richard Holmes did a book, quite a light book, but a bit of good one um, many years ago now. But, um, yeah, trying to fit it all in yeah, is the challenge. That's a, that's a lot of. Um, that's the challenge. Even with it, uh, I've got you know I've got a big word count, but actually trying to fit all that in is going to be challenging. But that's the fun, so I'm I'm very much looking forward to writing it.
0: But uh, is there a is, is there a general time frame for completion, or is that just gonna is it more of a wait and see thing? I mean, do they have any specific year that you want your publishers or
1: whoever? Yeah, I mean, obviously with there's no kind of anniversary. I think that it's going to hit. Uh, it's going to be three four years, I would imagine. Um, no longer than four. So, um, yeah, I, I think, it, you know, it, it, there'll probably be a, a kind of people will be fed up with the first war by 2018. Um, but after a few years, I think interest will start to pick up again. I think it's one of those subjects that will never be uninteresting. Um, it will always be interesting. Uh, so central to, you know, world history and, and European history and all that kind of thing. And I don't think that's going to go away. But, um, yeah, I think it's going to be a very exciting project. It's going to be a very big project, but, you know, I'm looking forward to it. Uh,
0: can you tell uh, the viewers, and I guess us as well out there, what pivotal moments in the war we should be looking out for from now until the 100 days?
1: Oh, well, you you know, 1918 is where it really moves up again, um, which I'm sure you'll find when you, you're trying to fit everything in with your videos. I mean... The Russian collapse in late 1917 and the strategic balance changes, the spring offensive, you know, that's something that deserves a a good look at. You know, the Germans attack on the Western Front and break through. Um, You know, the appointment of Ferdinand Foch as Supreme Allied Commander, Generalissimo, is a a key moment. You know, the arrival of the Americans, finally they get on the Western Front, you know, that's a key one. Yeah. You know We've got the battles throughout the summer, you know, the repeated German offensives, the intensity of operations in 1918 is absolutely unbelievable. You know, everyone is fighting, every single army in a way that we haven't seen since 1914. You know, and the, the British on the Somme, you know, it's one army. The fourth army is attacking on the Somme. In the 100 days of 1918, five armies are attacking at the same time. It's the intensity of operations and the scale and the size of 1918 is truly amazing. And I think that's, that's something really to think about. And, of course, you know, you've got the Second Battle of the Marne in July, Battle of Amiens in August, crossing of the Hindenburg Line, okay. and then... You know, the, the Germans fall apart. So 1918, I think, is really the unknown unknown year. And it's a year that is so important and so interesting. So, you know, you guys have got your work cut Oh, I know. I mean, I'll be having
0: my fun writing it. I I, I enjoy doing the week-by-week week thing. I think that's fun doing something that nobody's tried doing before like that. Uh, and I don't know what I'm going to do once the war is over as well. We don't even know how we're going to wind up the, the channel because you can't suddenly say in no, next November and they all lived happily ever after you know we we have to cover some of the aftermath um is
1: th- you go all the way to uh, Treaty of Versailles
0: yeah but you know people are wondering about some of the wars that in some ways were ex- an extension of the war like the Russian Civil War the Polish Soviet War and all the stuff with the Black Army in the Ukraine and things like that and you know there were the all the the fighting with the Reds and Whites across to Siberia and Hungarian evacuation. Pardon? Hungarian Romanian War. Hungarian-Romanian the Hungarian Romanian War. Well we'll see how we cover that. We'll, we have we have time before we have to decide that. So it's not like it's coming up next week and we don't know how to, to treat it. Um do you have any other questions? Well, uh, that's, that's all I had for you. Nick, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us and talk to everyone out there. This was really fascinating. It's nice to learn the writing process and to learn your more of your thoughts on Passion Dale.
1: Yeah, no, thank you very much for for inviting me on. I think the channel's, you know, a wonderful way of, of really getting history out there and and, and I think from, certainly from my perspective what I find fascinating is you really you really cover areas that I have no knowledge of whatsoever, you know, and, and the, the knowledge of the Eastern Front and, and all of the different aspects of the war, I think, you know, is just fascinating. So I think that, that that is, you know, a particular strength of the channel in terms of just showing the breadth and depth of the war.
0: I've, you know, some of the fronts I knew nothing about, like the Libyan front, you know, before, before starting the research for this. That's, for me, has been the most fun to learn stuff about, like, you know, the Centro. Caspian dictatorship and weird countries that we get to cover next year that exist during the war and not before or after the war. And everybody listening out there, Passchendaele is one of, if not the, main sources I've been using for the Battle of Passchendaele, and I warmly recommend it to anyone who wants to do their own research or who wants just a really good read, because as I said, it's a really gripping read. And we'll... We have links all over to to Nick's other books. So um, everybody go out and buy it and make him rich and make him even more famous, okay? All right, Nick, well, thank you very, very much, and good luck, and I, I look forward to reading The Western Front in a few years. Thank you very much.